Welcome to the SCORE Life and Health Innovation Podcast, where we dive right into how innovation is driving change around the world in our life and health ecosystem. From founders to investors and corporates, our world is changing rapidly, and we want to come together with you to explore those changes to understand and live transformation with SCORE. As one of the world's largest reinsurers, SCORE provides insurance companies with diverse and innovative solutions focused on the art and science of risk. Combining technical expertise and experience, SCORE leverages global know-how in over 80 countries focused on the life and health insurance industry. My name is Nia Escobar-Kolle and I am your host for today. For many years, mental health has been a taboo. We take care of our bodies by going to the gym, we tweak and carefully monitor our diets, we go to the doctor for annual checkups and take medication to prevent disease or when we're sick to recover promptly. However, it seems like the same approach we have for our bodies is not consistent with the approach we have with our minds or our brain. Today, we're talking to Dr. John Harrison, Associate Professor at the Alzheimer's Center at the Vrije University in the Netherlands. Dr. Harrison has over 20 years of experience understanding and studying Alzheimer's and other type of neurological diseases and has worked with pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies with the selection and successful integration of cognitive testing into drug development programs. An Alzheimer's advocate, he has over 60 books and scientific articles on topic including depression, schizophrenia and Parkinson's disease. John, uh, would you like to introduce yourself in 30 seconds? Uh, my name is John Harrison, so I'm a psychologist by training, and uh, my key passion or interest is the um, getting people to understand cognition and preserve their cognitive health. And uh, I do some freelance work, and I also have a couple of visiting professorships. The most relevant is probably the Alzheimer's Center in Amsterdam. So can you tell us about the Alzheimer's Centers in Amsterdam, please? Yeah, happily. It's a joy to work there. It's, it's just one of the most forthright, forward-thinking Alzheimer's centers I've encountered. So I'm surrounded by colleagues with lots of different interests, neuroimaging, biomarker assays, uh, lots of clinical work, as you would imagine. And uh, of all the centers that um, I've worked at, this is the one in the context of Alzheimer's that I find the most rewarding. Can you tell us in two sentences, what is Alzheimer's disease and what does it do to the human body? Alzheimer's disease is a diagnosis of exclusion still. So there are lots of reasons why you could present with the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And what we do is we exclude them. Um, so it could be some depression, could be some correctable physiological problems. Um, and then we're left with the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is essentially one that we confirm at postmortem, which is a little too late for everybody. Uh, but there are sort of some pathognomonic markers of Alzheimer's disease, so amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. And that usually is the confirmation we look for to suggest that you have Alzheimer's disease in life. Uh, what is cognitive health? How do we measure it? And how do we take care of it? Cognitive health, it's a people's cognition. And, and it's really just another way of thinking about the idea of thinking. So cognition is really thinking in sort of everyday parlance. And it's fragile. So there are lots of things that can impact on it. If you little bit sleep deprived, your cognition might be temporarily a little disrupted. If you've been taking intoxicants, so you know, alcohol classically has a very profound impact on your speed of response. So we, we know that it's fragile. And the trick always is to measure people when they are closest to their possible competence. That's a really precise estimate of their true ability. And it's made up of things like memory, concentrating, planning ahead, a whole host of things. We can get into the detail later, maybe. But that's essentially your cognitive health and the preservation of cognitive health 
One of the things that it's very susceptible to is changes in your brain status, the physiology of your brain. So if you have a, you know, a concussion or you have a stroke or if you have a degenerative disorder like Alzheimer's disease, this will disrupt your brain function. And as the brain is the biological seat of your cognition, that can impact on your cognition as well. Brains are pretty robust. So, you know, often brains can take quite a lot of damage before they start to show signs of any cognitive change. But if you've got a lesion in a very critical area, then that can have a profound and immediate impact on your ability to think. Can we cure neurodegenerative conditions or can, how can we prevent this condition? Really just at the brink of understanding, I think, neurodegenerative disease. So um, if I think about Alzheimer's as the classic example, uh, so we, we know that there are changes in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, they were always the target for therapists because the assumption was if there's something different about an Alzheimer's brain, if you can change that, you might also fix it. That turns out to be actually really hard to do. So we've uh, sadly, I think we're up to 130 consecutively failed drugs in the last 15 years. We haven't licensed a new drug for Alzheimer's disease for in that period. There are four drugs on the market currently, three of which are sort of putting a bit of extra chemical in the plumbing to, to preserve what's left. And one is a, a slightly different mechanism. Um, and I think the, the issue with um, neurodegeneration is, is probably this process has been going on a very long time before you present with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, classically, the brain has a lot of redundancy, and that's a good thing because you're going to need to preserve function as you progress through life. Um, but with Alzheimer's disease, it looks like that that's a very precipitous process. So it robs you of a lot of brain function and brain structure, and that tends to accelerate the decline to cognitive problems. So, so we, we think currently that you probably have the disease process as much as 15 years before you start to show it clinically. And that, that offers a, a challenge and an opportunity. So the, the challenge is, what can we do to possibly pick up that you are at risk of converting to a clinical diagnosis as early as possible? And then what, what can we do to institute change to reduce your risk of getting that far um, and possibly even introducing a therapeutic to prevent you ever getting Alzheimer's disease? So, so the challenge is picking you up early in the disease process. The opportunity is putting a fix in before you get to a level where you you present with the clinical signs of the disorder. So talking about uh, prevention and identifying disease before it actually, it, it might be a bit too late or a bit more complex to handle and to take care of patients, how is the healthcare industry actually tackling these processes? And in general, you work with over 40 different pharma companies and digital therapeutics companies to develop treatments and develop prevention formats. So can you tell us about this as well? Prevention is always better than cure. And, and this is an old, a very old adage, well understood and respected in medicine, I think more generally. So is there anything we can do to actually prevent the onset of things like Alzheimer's disease? Broadly, I, this is sort of an opportunity just to sort of put the record straight, I think, on a couple of things. So I, I think we tend to get a bit romantic when we get above the neck when it comes to human physiology. So I think it's really, really important just to emphasize for people that the brain is a physical organ just as the heart or the lungs or the kidney or the liver. It, we need to think of it in those terms. And as a general principle, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. So it's all about, I think, trying to ma manage your health in a physical sense. And I want to say a bit more about that. We, we talk about the physical and the mental, and I find that a very unhelpful distinction. I would say, look, you know, brains are the seat of cognition. Actually, they're the seat of everything that is you, I would say. So your personality, your memories, everything that's you 
sits in this cranium in this sort of bowl of cold porridge. And I think it would be really helpful for us to move towards, you know, maybe even abandoning the idea that there's mental stuff. I think it's a sort of legacy of you know, Renaissance philosophy. Um, and if we could start to think about the brain as a physical organ, then I think you remind people the stuff that you can do to reduce your risk of developing neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And the news is really good. I mean, all the work we've done so far, you know, people far cleverer than I have characterized the, the opportunity. And some estimates say you can reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's by 50%, but a conservative estimate would be that you can reduce your risk by a third. And the way you do that is the old, you know, the very traditional ways of looking after yourself. So um, we know that type two diabetes is a risk factor for dementia. We know that hypertension is a risk factor for dementia. Um, we know that if you tend to keep yourself busy and your mind ticking over, these are also good for trying to avoid it. It's you know, all the old stuff. It's about making sure you don't overeat, make sure you eat healthily. It's about making sure you exercise. And, you know, I, I know that these can you know, be very unpalatable choices for people. So I think it's also important to say that we're, we're looking for actually fairly modest investment in your health. Um, there, there was a tendency years ago, whenever we talked about how good exercise is for you, you're, um, keeping you physically fit, to have pictures of people running around in lycra in expensive running shoes. Um, I always use a picture of a couple walking hand in hand into the woods with the dog. And I just want to say, you know, walking around, just moving around is, is a really, really good start. So don't feel like you've got to sign up for the gym. If you want to do that, I'd be the last person to stop you. But you know, make sure that you get a check before you go. But even you know, getting out the house a couple of times a day, getting some steps in, this is very, very valuable and, and will pay dividends in most cases. So lots we can do. It's about living healthily and looking after yourself. Keep in mind that the brain is a physical organ. What's good for your heart is good for your brain. So what are innovative ways besides exercise, a healthy diet, and cognition exercises, of course, to prevent and treat Alzheimer's? Because I mean, in the last, I would say the last maybe 10 years, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the last years, we've seen a lot of interest in using technology, using applications, using, you know, data to understand disease and to actually help and treat patients who have been diagnosed or who, you know, through genetics have identified that they have maybe a tendency to develop certain diseases. So how is this with Alzheimer's disease? I see that the digital revolution has brought so many fabulous opportunities to us. So I, I think in the first instance, a better understanding of the disorders we're working with. So it's all about data. And as clever as we think we are, sometimes there are things that haven't occurred to us. And big data sets with the right questions asked of them, I think, will inform us hugely about these disorders. So you know, we have a picture of Alzheimer's disease, which has evolved a lot in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, it is, I think in most people's mind, it is primarily and, and almost exclusively for some people a disorder of memories. The kinds of things you hear from people is, well, I keep forgetting appointments or I lose my car keys, you know, some sort of basic memory failings. Um, and that's often how they come to our attention. But we now have a much more thorough understanding of the early presentation of the disorder. And it's just as likely that your ability to concentrate or your ability to make yourself understood or your ability to organize your thinking, so-called executive function, is just as fragile as your ability to remember new information. You know, big data sets that tell us much, much more about the true expression of the, of the disease is absolutely going to help us take this forward. 
I think we're moving to a point where we understand that there are lots of different pathologies that can give rise to the clinical presentation that looks like Alzheimer's disease. So I think we'll probably move quite quickly if we haven't already to the idea that there are Alzheimer's diseases, each possibly with a very distinct presentation and, and possibly a very distinct pathological mechanism. And I think if we've got big data collected using digital devices, there might be some clues in there as to where we should look in terms of the origins of the disease. Hugely optimistic about that. In terms of taking control of your own cognitive health, and let me just be really honest, I'm all about people understanding their cognition and taking control of their cognitive health. So this is a real front and center passion for me. Um, I think digital devices offer us the opportunity to do that. So, you know, I wear a Fitbit, it tells me my resting heart, it tells me my resting heart rate, it tells me whether I've done enough exercise, it gives me a nudge every hour to go do my 250 steps. In the last two years, with the aid of Fitbit and other technologies, I've massively reduced my own weight. So it helps me, it gives me a target, it gives me a nudge, it gives me control over my own health to some extent. And the trick, I think, is now to extend that to my cognitive health. Last night, I was doing a webcast to a whole bunch of insurers who are getting very, very interested in this space, and that's extremely welcome interest. And I was just making the point that, you know, with digital information, I can learn a lot about my own physiology, all the things I've just mentioned. So I asked the audience, do you know, do you know your weight approximately? Most people did approximately. Um, your BMI, slightly smaller percentages, but still a very high percentage of people. And then I asked them about their cognitive health, some basic things about their working memory span. And it shifted from like 83% of people who knew broadly what their BMI and their weight were to 7% when I asked about things like digit span and those kinds of things. So I'd like us to get to the point where people have a much more thorough understanding of their cognition. To do that, I think there's education programs and digital delivery is fabulous for this kind of thing. I've tried to contribute bits and pieces myself, but there's a whole host of good stuff out there. We just need to direct people to it. And then I think it's about saying to people that there are the means by which you could evaluate and monitor your own cognitive health. Um, I was saying last night, you know, if I want to know my temperature, if I'm running a fever, I go to the local drugstore and I pick up a thermometer and I test myself. And it's a great instrument for doing that job. It's much less obvious for people knowing where to go to get information about cognition. And that's one of the things we can do too. So making people aware of what cognition is and how they can manage it, giving them the means to monitor their own cognition. And then I think we empower people to take responsibility for their own cognitive health. And that I think has to be an aspiration. The analogy I always use, you know, 30 years ago, if I was in a restaurant with a, an uncle um, and he sort of clutched his arm and complained of pins and needles, he'd probably just write it off as indigestion, right? Because we, we weren't that savvy about things like cardiovascular disease. Um, now we're very different. So most people get that experience and they'll take themselves off for an ECG just to get themselves checked out. In cognitive health terms, I think we need to get there. I think currently we're a little bit like we were with cardiovascular health three decades ago. If we could get to the point where people understood their cognition, and a really good example of that, you know, we with Alzheimer's disease, um, one in four people in a UK survey still didn't know that it was a brain disorder. That's very fixable and that's great information because if you know that, that's the start point for trying to make a difference. And the, the corollary to all of that, I think, is also saying to people, when you know that there's a risk issue, you can try to do something about it. One of the challenges we have, we often call places that you would go if you think you had an issue like Alzheimer's disease, memory clinics, which kind of sets people up 
to only go if they have a memory problem. And if we were monitoring our cognition, there might well be that our ability to concentrate or ability to plan our thinking might be starting to decline, but it might not be the kind of thing that you notice on an everyday basis. If you're getting cognitive test screening, it might well highlight for you that there's something wrong that you otherwise would have missed. So there's a whole host of possibilities here and digital technology facilitates all of that. So talking about the more holistic, um, let's say, view on the healthcare ecosystem. So, you know, you have patients, you have healthcare providers, you have hospitals, you have insurance companies, and also in the middle, you also have, for example, therapists, you have labs, you have this whole set of different players that you know, ultimately come back to the patient and collect data and follow the patient through disease and ideally through recovering, right? Um, so what do you think we can do from the point of view of, you know, reinsurer, insurer, healthcare providers to patient to improve the, the prevention and care of new, neurological disease? I think it's in everybody's best interests for policyholders to understand their cognition, for people that provide cover to have an equally good understanding, and for everybody involved in that process to come to it with knowledge. That seems to me the fundamental. I'm a, I'm a career-long academic. I define myself as having a commitment to lifelong learning. So I would say this stuff, wouldn't I? But I think even a rudimentary understanding of these concepts facilitates that conversation and it gives everybody the opportunity to make an informed judgment. And I, I worry at the moment that that's not the case. I think there, there are people that hold the knowledge, people like me, and, and sometimes we hold it rather jealously. So I, th I think we need to be much more understanding and open up a lot more. You know, Psychologists often are very good at obscuring what we do by putting it in jargonese. So, you know, um, it's nice to talk about the quality of episodic secondary memory and amongst friends I might do that. But what I really mean is, can you remember stuff, right? It's interesting to talk about selective attention, but what I really mean is concentration. And I, I think finding a common vocabulary where we on the professional healthcare side open up a little bit and just try to put this in much more understandable language and give people access to that information facilitates the whole conversation. And I think one of the opportunities we have, and I think digital technology here has a really key role to play, is continuity of that information. So a huge challenge still, in spite of all the innovations of the last 30 years, is trying to find a single repository which contains the critical information we need to make good decisions. Now, Front and center on that are privacy issues, and I'd be the very first in the line to say you've got to defend that vigorously. Really, really important part of what we do. And I think, again, just as I'd like people to understand their cognition, I'd like to understand, get people to understand, I think in a more profound sense, their digital rights and the consequence of having a, a digital presence. So I, I think, again, you know, maybe we need to be just upping our game as a collective responsibility in terms of understanding what our rights are how we can protect our privacy, but benefit from sharing information with people that can help us. So for me, it's all about taking those disparate pieces of information, integrating them so we can all benefit from sharing that knowledge. Um, do you know your, and I don't know what's the unit for this, your, your memory score or your concentration score? Psychologists are very dull. We, we only measure two things, how quickly you do something and how much, you, how accurate you are at remembering. So it's, number of things you can recall and how quickly you do something. These are the two 
fundamental pieces of coinage we use to understand cognition. And we're very good at capturing them and comparing you with other people. So for every cognitive test that I would recommend, there's always a very large database of information about how other people perform. So when I want to look at my score or anybody else's score, I'll say, okay, so John, you're a 58 year old male with X number of years of education. On this test, I would expect you to perform at this level. And then I can make a comparison about where you are as compared to where we'd like you to be. And then I can look at change over time as well. So I, can, I know that as a 50 year old, I was recording an attentional score of milliseconds of whatever that might be. And I can look at what I do when I get to 60 and, and probably there'll be a difference, I'm afraid, and it'll be going in the wrong direction, but it'll be detectable. And an understanding of the units in which I measure my cognition allows me to make these judgments. So, so in terms of measuring cognition, um, you know, it, it sounds, I think, pretty complex, but you know, uh, your pressure in terms of your, um, your blood pressure is, is not easily understood. We give people simple numbers. You know, knowing your iron content, if you're anemic, knowing your blood sugars, you know, it, it sounds complicated if you're not familiar with it. But if you give people familiarity, it resonates very, very quickly. And as I say, for psychologists, how accurate and how quick are the two fundamental ways in which we measure your cognitive health. So it's just about a program of education and providing people with tools to allow them to do that for themselves. Completely. And I mean, it's also a matter of interest. For many people, we just maybe lack the motivation to actually ask questions and go and get the information, or we don't know where to find resources. So do you have any resources that you could recommend for people to understand their cognitive health? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, there's a few clips of me online, essentially sort of delivering up a description of what we mean by the various areas of cognition. So a little bit more detail about what I mean by episodic memory, what I mean by working memory, what I mean by attention. So there's, there are online resources. Um, I need to get around to you know, writing a sort of introductory paper for you know, anybody that's interested out there in these ideas. Um, so I, I can happily direct people to some of the things that I've written and I've tried to catch them in sort of you know, engaging terms and not the usual dry, dusty writing that I do in the academic context. So, so there is stuff out there. Um, it, it's, I, if I could make the case, you know, one of the best resources I always find when trying to understand a new indication or you know, something like Alzheimer's disease is the, the caregiver community website. So the Alzheimer's Association website in the US is extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's, there's something for everybody. So the really nice thing about the way they do it, you know, there's nice, gentle introductory descriptions. And then if you want a deep dive, there's plenty of extra information. So charities that represent um, advocates for various disorders, I find incredibly helpful repositories. So I'd happily direct people to those. Um, I think the other thing is, and, and I really want to make the plea, I, I know that whenever brain disorders come up, this can be true of psychiatric issues as a kind of neurological issues. I think there's a, a greater reluctance to go get the help that you need. So the, I'd really, really earnestly invite people to think very seriously about just going to find somebody who can help them. Oftentimes that's your primary healthcare practitioner. You know, they are a general practitioner, so they're gonna know a little bit about everything. And if they don't have the answers for you themselves, they're likely to know somebody that does. So, so if you're unsure, you know, if, if it were you know, a dermatological problem, if you had a really unpleasant rash suddenly appear on your arm, you probably wouldn't hesitate. You might wait a couple of days to see if it went away on its own, but then you go get some help. 
you know, we know that people with neurological and psychiatric disorders often wait a very, very long time before they go look to get some help. Um, and there are instances where there's something very practical and very quick we can do to help you. So, so let me just make that, that point. So I'd say lots of online repositories, typically the advocacy and caregiving organizations have high quality websites, but let, let me also please, please ask people, go get the help if you think you need it. If you can just be sent away reassured, that was time well spent as well, but at least you're reaching out to somebody who could potentially give you the leg up to understand what you need to do next. John, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really lovely conversation. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I love to do this kind of thing. And I, I hope that the people listening to the podcast find this interesting. Um, if you want to have me back at a later date, I'd be thrilled. For sure. Thank you so much for your time. Talk to you soon. Will do. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.